Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, some of you are, are new Christians, and, you know, it is my conviction and the conviction of a lot of pastors that the best way to feed the flock of God is by doing what is called expositional preaching, systematic expositional preaching. What that means is going through a book of the Bible verse by verse. A lot of advantages to that. You get to see it in context. It teaches you how to study your own Bibles, and that's what we generally want to do. That's what I'm generally committed to. But I've taken a break to give a topical message. There's a place for that where you take a subject and deal with it because perhaps the book you're dealing with isn't going to deal with a subject that you think is needy. And so we've taken some time to do this topical series on prayer. And messages, topical messages have uh, their challenges. Uh, you need to gather as much information as possible about the subject, and then you need to arrange it in categories. And what I've sought to do in preparation for these messages is to scour the New Testament in particular, asking questions about prayer. Why are we to pray? When are we to pray? Where are we to pray? And we've come to ask the question, how are we to pray? And last week, I began to answer that question by showing you that it's biblical to bring arguments to God in prayer. Not arguments contending with God, but arguments that appeal to what God desires to do. Arguments that honor God. You know, his praise, his glory, his person, his perfections, his, his promises, what he's done in the past, his pity. We can appeal to these things and bring arguments to God, and they honor him. So we are to pray argumentatively. Continuing this morning with how we are to pray, we are to pray passionately. And I want to take you to various passages of Scripture where we see certain words that are used that indicate that our prayers are not to be unfeeling, they're not to be dispassionate, they're not to be ho-hum and casual, but there is to be some passion invested in our praying. We're going to look at some Ex expressions of passionate prayer, and then a few examples from the Bible of passionate prayer. First, expressions of passionate prayer. Listen to the language the Bible uses to describe how the people of God are to pray. First of all, we are to pray fervently. And I'm not going to turn you to these texts. That's why you have the outline. In Acts 12, 5, Peter in the early church has been taken to prison by Herod. And we read in Acts 12, 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. They were praying for Peter's release and protection, but they weren't just praying, they were praying fervently. It wasn't like, Lord, yeah, if you want, you know, release Peter from prison. They were praying with fervency. That word fervent, fervently, ectenes, means to be eager, earnest, to stretch out the hand for something. It is the word used of Jesus' prayer in the garden. When being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down from the ground. It's also the word used to describe the love we're to have for one another in 1 Peter 4.8. Peter says that we are to keep fervent in our love for one another. But we are to pray fervently, stretching out in prayer for what we're asking. Then we're to pray most earnestly. 
My translation says in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul wants to get back to Thessalonica. At one point he says the devil hindered him and he's praying most earnestly. That's the word, huperek parisu. One Greek lexicon says it's to pray as earnestly as possible. That's the word used in Ephesians 3.20, where it says God is able to do super abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Have you ever had that happen where you're asking for something and God does more than you even ask for? Super abundantly, that's the same word. Uh, it's actually the word in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 for the way you are to esteem very highly in love those who labor among you, your pastors. We like that, Clint and Sean, right? Now you are to you are to have a, a very high esteem for those who labor among you. And so Paul said, we are praying most earnestly with intense desire. He couldn't pray more earnestly. Another family of words is the Greek word agonizomai, and you will recognize agony or agonize. Here we are getting into the athletic and military realm. In Colossians 4.12, Paul says, Epiphras, who was from the Colossian church, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. That's the word agonizomai. He's agonizing in prayer. What does that word mean? Well, it's a word used to describe intense athletic competition. It's the word used in 1 Corinthians 9.25, where Paul says, everyone who competes in the games, agonizomai, and he's talking about wrestling, he's talking about boxing, he's talking about foot race. And you know that athletes really invest a lot of, of energy in, in their competition, right? And so that's the word, agonizomai. And Paul says, Epiphras, a man from your own church, he labors earnestly, he agonizomais for you in prayer. Paul says in Romans 15, 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That's sun agonizomai. You know, sun means together, like a symphony. And, and I want you to agonize with me in prayers for me and my ministry. It's also a word used in a military context. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would agonizomai. They would be fighting, but they're not. And so here's a word that is to characterize our prayer. Agonizomai, striving like an athlete in a foot race or in a boxing match or in a wrestling contest. We are to apply that to prayer. Now let me say this that it's also the word used to describe how a person comes into the Christian life. It's the word used in Luke 13, 24, where Jesus says, strive to enter by the narrow door. Agonizomai, to enter by the narrow door. For many will seek to enter and will not be able. Let me speak to you who may not be a Christian or Brothers and sisters, 
I also say this because when you witness to non-believers, this is something that you can say. Nobody gets into the Christian life without a fight. No one enters the Christian life casually. I like to put it this way. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, oh, I think I'll become a Christian today. Seems to be a nice philosophy. No! Nobody goes without a fight. Agonizomai, strive to enter the narrow door. Why is that? Why does Jesus say that about the kingdom of God that violent men are taking the kingdom by force? Why does it require violence to enter the kingdom to become a Christian? Because there are many enemies that want to keep you out of the kingdom of God and out of heaven. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil wants to keep you out of the kingdom of God and out of heaven. And so he tells his lies. You know, this stuff about Jesus and the gospel, it's really not true. Or you don't need it. Or you can wait till later. Look, enjoy life. Sow your wild oats. And later, you know, when you're about to die, you can shoot up a prayer and, and get into heaven. And he's feeding you with all kinds of lies because he doesn't want you in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want you in heaven. You have an enemy, the devil. You have an enemy in the world. There's a world full of people who do not love God. And misery loves company. And they don't want you parting from them and entering into the kingdom of God. And so they're trying to keep you out of the kingdom of God. The world and worldly people are trying to allure you and get you preoccupied with work or with social media or with other things to keep you out of the kingdom of God. And then, my friend, there's your own heart, full of pride and full of self-righteousness that is telling you, well, you know, this Jesus, I don't really need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I, I'm good enough to make it on my own. I'm just going to clean up my life a little bit, and, and God will understand, and, and God will accept me. My friend, no, he won't. Jesus, he says, strive to enter by the narrow door, and Jesus Christ is the door. He is the only door. You cannot get into the kingdom of God by any other door. The Bible calls you a thief. And a robber, if you try to jump over the wall and get in another way, Jesus Christ is the door. And if for you to enter, you need to agonizomai. You need to enter by violence. But let me tell you, it's a good violence. It's a good violence. It's a violence done to the devil's kingdom. It's a violence done to this world and its ways. And it's a violence done to your sin, which if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. So my unbelieving friend, or you can share this, you have to tell unbelievers, you got to strive to enter the kingdom. It's going to be with, with a fight, but enter by the narrow door. But for those of us who, by the grace of God, have striven and have done violence to the self-life and to the devil's kingdom that we've entered, there's still striving for us to do in prayer. Strive in prayer. Agonizomai in prayer. Another group of words describing our prayer is great sorrow, unceasing grief. Great sorrow and unceasing grief is to characterize at least some of our praying. And here I refer you to the Apostle Paul. Again, you need not turn there for the sake of time, but 
In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul is our example, and he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for his fellow Jews, his countrymen, is for their salvation. My desire, that word eudokia, means delight, my desire, my pleasure. He had a passion and strong feeling for his fellow Jews to be converted. This is expressed even more strongly in the previous chapter, chapter 9 of Romans, where he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He had great sorrow. He had unceasing grief. That word means without intermission, no intermission. And the word grief there is consuming grief, pain, and sorrow. And I could wish, ukumai, which is another word for prayer, I could wish or pray that I myself might be anathema, a curse, devoted to God for destruction in order for my fellow Jews to be saved. Friends, in our praying for the lost, especially those that are near and dear to us, we need to experience something of this grief. It's got to be. The reason is because Jesus is our pattern. And as you know, Jesus is described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows. Now, what caused him sorrow? No doubt, being the holy, perfect being that he is, coming from that holy place of heaven and coming to, the, to, to this earth, which he and his father had created originally in a pristine state, and seeing the mess that sin had made on the earth, seeing the effect of sin on the bodies of people, the brokenness, the blindness, and the deafness, and the, the crippledness that Jesus looked at with compassion and healed, seeing the wickedness in the hearts of people, seeing their animosity toward him, their animosity and malice toward one another, all of that brought sorrow to the holy heart of Jesus but friends, no small part of the sorrow that Jesus bore would have been as he saw the rejection of himself. Did he not weep over Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you, you leaders, would not. And he wept over their unbelief when he confronted the rich young ruler and presented the good news of the gospel, but he gave him the cost, and the man walked away because he, he was rich, and he was unwilling to give up his riches. You know what it says? Jesus had to let him go. There was no plan B. You know, you have to come wholeheartedly to Jesus or not at all. He had to let him go, but it says Jesus loved him as he watched him walk away. And so what I'm saying is, in our prayers, especially for those who are near and dear to us, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and friends, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to bear some of that grief in our hearts as Jesus did. They can't weep. They won't weep for themselves. We need to weep in our hearts for them. It's another way that we're called to pray. And then 
There are a few words that are translated crying out. The word kradzo, that's what we call, English people call onomatopoeia. You heard that word? Onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what it is, like wow or bam. Well, this is an onomatopoeic word, kradzo. It, it, it sounds like crying out, kradzo. And it's used in Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from the region and began to cry out, Kradzo, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. woman who, with typical maternal love, had to watch her daughter be, be cruelly abused by this demon. And she didn't come just casually. Jesus, you think you could help? She was Kradzoing. She was crying out, Lord, help me. I can't stand to watch my daughter go through this. In Mark 10, 46 and 47, one of my favorite passages of the Gospels, the blind beggar Bartimaeus, marginalized man, and in his poverty, he didn't have welfare. He didn't have any way to support himself, and he's lying on the side of the road, and he hears that Jesus is coming by, and it says he cries out, Kradzo, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. He's on his way to Jerusalem the entourage stops, and he has time for actually two blind beggars, and he heals them on his way to the cross. Another word is boao. It means to cry, to speak with a high, strong voice, to cry to one for help, to implore his aid, to cry out as a manifestation of feeling. That's the word used in Luke 18:7 in a parable where Jesus says, his elect who cry, boao, to him day and night. That's the word used to describe Jesus' cry from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Another word, krauge, loud crying, outcry, clamor. It describes Jesus praying in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And then there's a, a, a final word translated in my version anyway, beseeching. It's to desire, long for, ask, or beg. In Luke 5, 12, a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He begged him. And in Luke 9, 38, and behold, a man from the multitude shouted and out saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, the spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. It's the word used in 9, Matthew 9, 38, we are to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. So, brothers and sisters, this is the language. I didn't write it, but this is the language of the New Testament that describes some of the ways that we are to pray. Would you agree with me that there's to be some passion in our praying? It's not to be unfeeling. It's not to be ho-hum. It's not to be casual. There is some passion invested in praying. And now, briefly, let's look at some examples. And we'll quickly cover some examples from the Old and New Testament. I turn you first to the example of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel 
reflecting upon the sins of his people, Israel, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which uh, was revealed as the word as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jeremiah of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. He was reading that oh this this exile is going to be for seventy years, and then God's going to bring the people back. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And so he prayed with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Ezra was a man who was used of God to help rebuild the temple after God brought the people back from exile in Babylon and we hear Ezra's passion in his prayer in Ezra chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Ezra the priest. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, etc. For they have taken some of the daughters uh, as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. In other words, the people, they've been shown such mercy. They're restored to their land after Babylonian captivity, but they're again lapsing into sin. They're again lapsing into remarriage or marriage to pagans, which will bring them into idolatry. And then we read, in um, when I verse three, when I heard about this, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard and sat down appalled. So Ezra, passionate in his prayer over the sins of his people of Israel, Nehemiah's passion in also a man used of God after the Babylonian captivity to rebuild not the temple but the wall. And coming to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1, we read of his passion in prayer, beginning at chapter 1, 1 to 3, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of the brothers, my brothers, and some men from Judah came and asked uh, them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Then listen to uh, Nehemiah's prayer. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And he goes on in his prayer, another passionate prayer. Last week, we looked at the prayer of, of Hannah, that, that prayer that she had in 1 Samuel 1, 9 to 11, and it wasn't a selfish prayer. She wanted a son so that she might devote him to God, which she was given and which she did. That became Samuel, 
the great prophet, the kingmaker in Israel. But 1 Samuel 1, 9 to 11, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. And then the prayer of Anna. One more from the New Testament, that dear old Saint Anna, one of the few looking for redemption in Israel, looking for the Messiah with with biblical, through a biblical lens, she and the old man Simeon and Anna is a, a woman in Luke 2, beginning at verse 36, and listen to her story. There was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up, began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who's, uh, those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna praying year after year in the temple with fastings and prayers. Well, brothers and sisters, what are we to learn from these the words used and the examples given. Certainly, I hope we learn that prayer is not to be a ho-hum, casual activity, something that we do in a dispassionate way. But if our prayers are to honor God, if they are to be effectual before God, if, if God is to bring revival to our hearts, to the church, and to the world, these are the things that need to increasingly characterize our praying. Fervency earnestness, striving, great sorrow and unceasing grief, crying out, beseeching. We must become more like the Daniels, Ezra's, Nehemiah's, Hannah's, and Anna's of the Bible, not being content with the way things are in our own lives, in our church, and certainly in our world. It's challenging, isn't it? It's kind of intimidating. It's challenging to me. It's a rebuke to me. And I want to challenge myself as I ask you to challenge yourself and ask about your prayer life. Is it fervent? Is it earnest? Can it ever be described as an agonizomai, a striving? Is there sorrow and grief in your heart, whether expressed with visible tears or not? over the loved ones that continue to harden their hearts despite your efforts to bring the gospel to them and despite your prayers year after year? Is there anything of crying out, kradzo? Anything of beseeching and begging God? Brothers and sisters, if our prayers are never characterized by these things, they are sub-biblical. They are sub-Christian. But thankfully, we have a God who is at work in us, right? To will and to work for his good pleasure. A God who can change us and help us to grow in the areas where we need to grow. May he help us in this area to grow in not only praying more, but praying more passionately according to the will of God. But let me say a balancing word here. 
You know how I try to be balanced in everything. In talking about passionate prayer, I'm not saying, nor I think is the Lord saying, that you need to be of a particular personality or temperament type. There are some people that just wear their emotions on their sleeve. They are just bubbling with emotion, and others are not. And that's okay. God has fashioned us with different personalities, different temperaments. So we're not so much looking for, you know, volume or, or visible tears of passion. It's more a matter of the heart, isn't it? Not trying to press anybody into some personality mold. Recently, a young man asked if I would review one of his sermons. And I took the time to do that, and I listened to his sermon and had a lot of encouraging things to say. One of the things I look for is passion. Isn't that a good thing? You want a man to have some passion for what he's preaching to others. And, you know, he's not a, a loud person. He's not a, an outwardly expressive person. He's not a vehement person. But, you know, I said to him in an email, I said, I heard passion consistent with your God-given personality. Not trying to press him into any particular personality mold. Passion is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of volume. It's not a matter of temperament. God has made us with different personalities to his glory. But I close with a reminder of our great exemplar in prayer, Jesus. We read in Mark 14, 34, in the garden, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray. And you know what he prayed. If it be possible, let this hour pass from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus agonized in prayer in the garden. Why? Because he was about to become sin for all who would ever trust in him and bear the countless billions of sins of millions of people who would eventually trust in him. He was going to become sin for them on the cross and bear their sins. And the Bible says that the Father was pleased to crush him. It was God the Father who subjected Jesus to the agony of body and soul in the garden and on the cross. So I say to anyone who thinks they can get into the kingdom of heaven some other way than Jesus. Do you think God will take lightly to that? When God the Father crushed his son, subjected him to that agony of body and soul for the sake of our salvation, and you come along and say, well, I think I can get to heaven some other way. Don't count on it. God the Father will not take lightly to that. But again, if you're outside of Christ, there is a way that God will welcome you. Come through the door, Jesus Christ. Come with empty hands. You don't have to clean up your life first. You don't have to clean up. One Amish minister once said to me, that's like saying to, to, uh, to his wife, hey, we better clean the house because the maid is coming. No, the maid is coming to clean the house. You don't clean up your life before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus with the mess that you are, but you say, Jesus, clean me up, forgive me, and change me. And he has the power and the willingness to do that. But don't try to come another way. It won't work.
Well, let's pray and we'll sing and come to the supper. Oh, Lord, we confess that our prayers are so often casual. If we pray at all, they are ho-hum and casual, muttered, without a lot of passion. But, Lord, we see the pattern in your word. We see some of the words, the fervency, the earnestness, the crying out, the beseeching, the begging. And we ask that you would work in us to help us in our prayer lives to to make them more characterized by these things. Give us a, a burden, a greater burden for the things that burden your heart. Lord, help us, change us by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name.